0: Well, our scripture text this morning for our sermon is John chapter 20. We're going to read the whole chapter. So if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to John chapter 20. Again, if you don't have a Bible, we have plenty of them over there on the back table. And if you are able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. It's a long chapter, so if you're not able to stand that long, you can remain seated. But if you're able to do so, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. John chapter 20. Give you the word of God. It says now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone has been had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward uh, the tomb, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. 8 days later his disciples went inside again were inside again and Thomas was with them although the doors were locked Jesus came and stood among them and said peace be with you then he said to Thomas put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand put out your hand and place it in my side do not disbelieve but believe Thomas answered him my lord and my god and Jesus said to him have you believed because you have seen me blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, you may know that you know, all, all four of the Gospels, I think I mentioned this last Sunday, uh, on Palm Sunday, all four of the Gospels give accounts of the triumphal entry, which we celebrated last Sunday on Palm Sunday. Uh, all four Gospels give an account of the crucifixion of Christ for sinners, for our sins, which we commemorate every Good Friday, this past Friday. And while those accounts don't, they don't contradict, they're also not identical. They're not cookie cutters. Sometimes people say, why are there four Gospels in the Bible? And, you know, when you read them, there are various parts that are very similar, and there are parts that are not similar, not that they contradict, but that they give different details. Sometimes they'll give a different perspective. It's, it's really the perspective of, of different apostles to those events that are included there. There are some things that certain Gospels leave out. Like you might know, there's only two of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only Matthew and Luke have a birth narrative of Christ. That doesn't mean it's unimportant. It just means that wasn't their point uh, in writing it. And the same is true when it comes to the events of that first Easter Sunday 2,000 or so years ago. Uh, the, the primary historical fact is the same in each, and that is certainly the resurrection of Christ from the dead on the third day, which John tells us in verse 1 was on what? The first day of the week, they're all alike in that regard, but each of the gospel accounts in some ways kind of focuses on different aspects of, of the truth of the resurrection that took place. So Matthew, for example, not the text that we're looking at this morning, but Matthew goes into great detail about how the stone was rolled away from the tomb. He tells us about an earthquake. He tells us about an angel rolling the stone away, which you know, some estimates say it was like a ton or two tons in weight it wasn't something that would have been easily removed uh, from the opening of the tomb Um, he tells us how the guards that were at the tomb the Roman guards fainted or fell as dead men they froze with fright at the at the angel's presence here in John's gospel all that we're told is that when Mary Magdalene came to the tomb that that early in that Sunday morning it says in verse one she saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb So it doesn't mention how that stone got moved. It doesn't mention what happened to the soldiers. It almost, you know, to us, it almost seems as if John skips past what are some of the more exciting details of the event, although that would be wrong. The most exciting detail of the event wasn't the angel and the earthquake and the stone being powerfully moved away. It was that Christ rose. That's the main thing. So what John focuses on in our text in John chapter 20 this morning uh, is the curious fact that it seemed like, despite the truth of what happened, at first none of the disciples seemed equipped to understand what was supposed to happen to Jesus. He told them ahead of time, he's going to suffer at the hands of the priests and, 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 and what not. He was going to be crucified and he was going to rise from the grave. He told them ahead of time so they would know what was going to happen. But what we see actually happening is they seem unprepared for it. They seem almost at least in Thomas's case, unwilling to believe or unable uh, to believe what was supposed to happen to Jesus. So Mary Magdalene, she wasted no time. It says as soon as the Sabbath was over, she came to the tomb. It's like she was up way early in the morning and waiting for the clock to tick to the right hour so the Sabbath was over. It says in verse 1 she came there, what, early while it was still dark? But when she saw the stone rolled away from the mouth of the tomb, the last thing she could have imagined... Was that Jesus was alive? Twice in our text, she says someone took him. That has to be what happened, right? He's not here. I get that. He's gone. So the only, the only logical conclusion of that is someone must have came and taken him. And she's asking, where did he, you know who took him? Where'd they take him? That seems to be what she's thinking. She assumes that someone had taken him away or moved his body. And think about this. Even the sight of two angels didn't change that. She didn't see the angels and go, oh, now I get it. She saw two angels and were like, did you take him? Do you know where they took him? That was the thing that she asked them. Uh, Both the angels and Jesus himself asked her, woman, why are you weeping? What are you crying about? It's because she didn't understand what was happening. But her grief was finally turned to joy when she said, when Jesus said her name, when he said Mary, she was shown that it was really him. And she finally saw and understood. What about the disciples? You, know, you and I might think, well, they're the disciples of Jesus. Uh, they're the apostles after Jesus uh, commissioned them. Certainly they'll do better than Mary did. You know, It's understandable if Mary didn't get it, but surely the apostles must have done must have done better. What about Peter and John? They, they did pretty well, right? They raced to the tomb. One can't help but wonder if they didn't understand what was going to happen, why did they go to the tomb? What was the point? But they raced to the tomb. That first Easter Sunday, but not until Mary came to them with the news that the tomb was empty. Shouldn't they have been expecting Jesus to rise from the dead? But it seems like they they didn't. Think about this. It wasn't that long ago uh, in this text, in the book of John, that Jesus in their presence raised Lazarus from the dead. They had seen a resurrection from Jesus already. You'd think they would have been prepared for what was going to happen to Christ. They saw evidence of his resurrection, right? They saw the burial cloths lying where the body had lain. Think about this. If you're a grave robber, if you were going to take the body, would you? why would you unwrap him? It would make no sense. But there the cloths were and there the, the head covering was folded and put neatly in place. Uh, and we're told that John, and John is humble here. He calls himself the other disciple. He also calls himself the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. There's a lot of bragging, sort of humble bragging going on in the text. There's a race, he tells us, he beat Peter. You know, but Peter went into the tomb first. Uh, he saw and believed. Then in verse John, verse 9, John says that as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So they believed, but as, as Wes said last week during prayer, you know, that Bible verse that says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That was them. They believed, but they didn't quite get it yet. They still didn't know what was going on. In fact, what was the very next thing they did? They went home. You would think they would be running through the streets yelling that Jesus was raised from the dead, saying he is risen. They went back to their homes, verse 10. They kind of went back into hiding, is what they were doing. And then what do we find the disciples doing? They were meeting together on that Sunday night. This maybe was the forerunner of the Sunday evening service. They had a Sunday evening meeting. And what does John say in verse 19? The doors were locked where the disciples were gathered. Why? For fear of the Jews. They they, they were worried that they were going to be persecuted and hunted down just as Jesus had been because they were following him. Now, just as, as Mary's weeping was turned to joy when she finally saw Jesus, even so, the disciples' fear was also turned to joy as well. When Jesus suddenly was standing among them and twice he says to them, peace be with you. They were scared. They were nervous. They were frightened. They were hiding. And the first thing Jesus says is, peace be with you. So it was going to be okay. A sealed tomb couldn't keep Jesus in, and a locked door couldn't keep Jesus out. But there's more. John says that one of the disciples, famously known to us, most of us probably is doubting Thomas, although the Bible doesn't call him that. Uh, Thomas wasn't there for church that night. Thomas missed, missed the meeting and missed the whole thing. And to make it worse, when they told him what happened, he refused to believe. He wasn't going to believe unless he saw. Verse 25, he says, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. What does that tell you about the spear wound that Jesus had when he was being crucified? It was very noticeable, and, and Thomas knew that he really died. It's, it's, you can't even imagine that Thomas would actually want to touch those, those wounds, but that's what he says. But as he was throughout the account, the Lord Jesus was very patient and gracious with his disciples who were slow of heart to believe, as Luke twenty four twenty five tells us. And is that not comforting to us today? How many of us believe when we pray, help our unbelief? We get it, but we don't really get it. We've heard these truths over and over again, but we still sometimes don't live uh, properly in light, in light of them. He is patient with us. Uh, he does not break the bruised reed, as Isaiah says or quench the smoking flax. He is gentle with us in our weakness. He is a high priest that sympathizes with his people in our weaknesses because he's been there and suffered all these things, even temptations, although without sin. What did Jesus do for doubting Thomas? Did he say, well, you should have been there. Sorry you missed out. You know, Church was open and you didn't show up, so that's, that's, that's what you get. No, he, he kind of gave him a do-over, didn't he? He showed up again for Thomas's benefit, for his sake. Uh, and he, he came back in the very next week, and when Thomas was there, he came through the locked doors again, and he stood among them and said again, Peace be with you, verse 26. Now, he spoke peace to Thomas as well. He even offered to let him do what he said he was going to do. I'm not going to believe unless I touch the nail prints and the, the part where he, the spear went. He offers to let him touch those things. There's no indication that Thomas did any such thing. My hunch, my sanctified guess is that he never went close to do such a thing when he saw Christ. Despite the fact that he had told them repeatedly, Jesus did, that he was going to be betrayed, crucified, and rise from the dead. No one got it. No one understood. And if there was one thing they were all sure of, it was that Jesus was dead. There was no doubt in the disciples' minds that Jesus was dead. You know, one of the things that this tells us is that Jesus really did die on the cross. You know... You might know that there are skeptics and scoffers and unbelieving scholars that have come up with all kinds of fanciful explanations and rationalizations to explain away Christ's death and resurrection. And one of them is called the swoon theory. And this theory uh, postulates that Jesus was really beat up and wounded, uh, but he wasn't actually dead. He was only mostly dead, right? And that he was put in the tomb, right? He was always a movie quote. Put him, put him in the tomb. And then he kind of woke up, uh, as, bad as, as bad off as he was, he woke up and crawled out of the tomb wounded. So how the stone got rolled away, how he, you know, and this this was their explanation. He didn't, really, he didn't really die in the first place. Well, that was news to the disciples who watched him die. They were so sure that he was dead that they weren't going to believe that he was walking around living unless they saw him with their own with their own eyes. This was no, his death on the cross was no fainting. It was no swooning. It was no uh, seeming to be dead. In fact, the purpose of that spear wound was to make sure that he was actually dead before they brought him down from the cross. In addition to the severe beating that Jesus had, you might know in the Gospel accounts, Jesus was beaten severely. Many people who were sentenced to crucifixion died of the beating before they actually got to the cross. So he was in a bad way before that. He was beaten uh, the, the cross was a brutal form of capital punishment, and then you had the spear thrust through his side to make sure that he was dead. You know another convincing proof of his death is the reaction of jesus' disciples that they could not believe uh, that he was still that he was alive they couldn 't believe that he had risen from the grave, and that 's because they had no doubt whatsoever that Jesus had actually died on the cross. You know, another thing that our text uh, indicates for us, I think, is that the things we read of in the Bible and the Gospels and where else in the Scriptures? They have kind of that that ring of truth to them. They don't; they're not written the way that people who are making up stories would write them. You know, if, if we were going to invent a religion and include ourselves as disciples in in that inventing of that religion, I don't think we would be very quick to focus on our own foibles, our own failures and sins and shortcomings, our our, our, our failure to believe. And yet that's what John. Highlights in that. Even their belief was a, a miracle of God and a gift. Their faith was a gift by God. These, these aren't the kind of things that men make up when they make up stories. They don't make up things that make them look bad in this way. And so once again, I think the scriptures are borne out as being true and trustworthy and having that ring of truth that we recognize when we read them. Well, I want to look at three things briefly this morning about the resurrection of Christ from our text in John's gospel. And the first of those things is the necessity of the resurrection. The necessity of the resurrection. Verse, verse 9, John says, he talks about the, slow, the slowness of the disciples to believe. He says in verse 9, as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. In other words, the scriptures prophesied and foretold that Christ was going to raise from the dead. And because of that, he had to rise from the grave. It was necessary that Jesus would rise from the dead. And why is that? The first first reason for that is stated right in the text. Jesus had to rise from the dead because the scripture said so. Remember it says, as of yet, verse 9, they did not understand what? The scripture that he must rise from the dead. That tells you what your view of the Bible ought to be. Our view of the Bible, the Scriptures, ought to be that it is the very word of God. When God says something is going to come to pass, you can be sure that that, whatever it is, is going to come to pass. Period. Exclamation point. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6 says this. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. We don't take away from God's word. We don't add to God's word. Every word. Not not just every paragraph. Not just the gist of it. Not just every sentence. Every word of God proves true. Down to the words themselves. Numbers 23.19 says this about God. God is not a man that he should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said that? And will he not do it? Or has he spoken? And will he not fulfill it? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Both of those things. The the implication is if God has spoken, he will do it. And he will fulfill it. If God says anything in his word, that settles it. The Bible says in Psalm 119.89 that God's word is forever settled in the heavens. And both the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures Tell of Christ and foretold of his death and resurrection, his suffering and glory. So Jesus had to rise from the grave because the Bible said he was going to do just that. The second reason is, is because of who Jesus is. Jesus had, it was necessary that Christ would rise from the grave because the Scriptures said so. And it was necessary. It had to happen. It couldn't help but happen because of who Jesus is as the son of God. The Apostle Peter puts it this way in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Acts 2, verses 22 to 32. He says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Here it is. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Impossible for Jesus not to rise. And here he says, For David says concerning him, and he quotes what? Psalm 16, our call to worship this morning. David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And he goes on and says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, he's saying David wasn't talking about David. When he was saying what he said, his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet, talking about David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So, you have the inspired commentary on Psalm 16 here through the mouth of the Apostle Peter saying that Jesus' resurrection was the fulfillment of of David's prophecy in Psalm 16. Jesus had to rise from the grave. Notice Peter says it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Not possible. And why not? Because he's God in the flesh. And why else once again? Because the scripture said so in Psalm 16. That psalm was written by David a thousand years before Christ. And it was written about Christ and his glorious resurrection. Peter says that David, quote, saw, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ when he wrote that he was not abandoned to Hades and his flesh did not see corruption or decay. In other words, the fact that Jesus didn't stay long enough in the grave To decay. That was prophesied by David a thousand years before the event happened. The second thing we want to look at about the resurrection is not just the necessity of it, but the significance or the meaning of it. The significance of the resurrection. What what does the resurrection mean to us? What does it tell us about Jesus? It proves that Jesus is exactly whom he claimed to be all along. The resurrection of Christ proves that Jesus really is the the Messiah who was to come and was promised and prophesied throughout the Old Testament. He really is the Redeemer who came and was sent to save us from our sins. J.C. Ryle uh, puts it this way. He says, concerning the importance of Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead, it would be hard to speak too strongly. It is a cardinal article of the Christian faith Second to none in value, it is the grand proof that he was the promised Messiah whom the prophets had foretold. That's what his resurrection signifies. that it was the grand proof, Ryle says, that Jesus was the promised Messiah whom the prophets had foretold. That's what the Apostle Paul was talking about in that passage I read earlier in the service in First Corinthians 15 verses three to four. There he says, "For I delivered to you, as of first importance, the main thing, the most important thing that he ever told them about. And what is it? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The resurrection of Christ from the dead also is a proof of his deity, of the fact that he is truly the Son of God incarnate. It proves to us he really is the Lord. That's what they called him. That's what Mary said. I, I've seen the Lord. That's what the disciples said they had seen the Lord. That's what his resurrection proves. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1 verse 4 where he writes that Jesus was, quote, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. How? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In fact... That's what the Apostle Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is really saying. He said that God had made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. The resurrection proved that he was the Messiah and it proved and demonstrated that he's also the Lord. Only the Lord God himself has the power over life and death. And so Christ's resurrection on that first Sunday declares his deity that, there he, that he's none other than God, the Son of God himself. And the Lord. And everybody in our text finally kind of got that point after some time, didn't they? Mary not only called Jesus Rabboni, which means my teacher, uh, he, she also tells the disciples, verse 18, who, who had she seen? I have seen the Lord. And what about doubting Thomas? Remember, I'm not going to believe unless I can touch the nail prints and touch the wound in his side. All he does is give us one of the greatest confessions of the deity of Christ in all of Scripture. Verse 28, he says, my Lord and my God. He wasn't taking God's name in vain. He was confessing Christ as his Lord and his God. Why? Because of the resurrection of Christ his Lord. Jesus was Thomas's Lord and Jesus was Thomas's God. And so I'll ask this morning, do you confess the same? Is Jesus your Lord? Is Jesus your God? Do you confess him as your Lord, your God God? and your savior because that's what the true biblical faith always confesses. It is not left to us to to pick and choose different things in scripture and to say, "Well, you know, we can't be like the Jehovah's Witnesses who say, "Well, he's sort of God." They use a small g in their in their twisted translation of the scriptures. They say he was a god. He's not a god, he's God in the flesh. He's the son of God from all eternity. And that finally brings us to not just the Uh, the necessity and significance of the resurrection of Christ, but also its purpose. There's a lot we could say, but we'll just stick to a few things in our text about the purpose of Christ's resurrection. What is the purpose of Christ's resurrection? And what is the purpose of John's account of the historical event of the resurrection of Christ? What does it mean for you and I today? Uh, What is the purpose of, of Christ and his resurrection and John's writing of it and the Holy Spirit's inspiration of that writing You know, very often in the Scripture, uh, every once in a while you'll see in a a book of the Bible what we call kind of a purpose statement. Uh, John John gives us one here in our text. In other words, he's saying, here's why I wrote the Gospel of John that we call it today. Why did John write about all the miracles Jesus did in the Gospel of John? Look at verses 30 and 31. John says in verses 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of, of the disciples, which are not written in this book. The Gospel of John would be a very large volume if it included all the miracles of Christ. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What are the two things the resurrection proves about Christ or demonstrates to be true about Christ? That he is the Christ and that he is the Son of God. And John tells us in no uncertain terms, This is why I wrote what I wrote, that you might see the miracles of Christ and understand and believe who he is and what he came to do and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. You might know that John's gospel is centered around the miracles of Christ. I believe it's centered around seven of them in particular. There's many more than seven. Uh, But the last two arguably are the biggest of his miracles. In John chapter 11, we are shown the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead you might recall in that chapter that Jesus—it sounds kind of crass and harsh—like he actually delayed getting there to make sure Lazarus died. Remember, his sister, Lord, if you had come, you know, on time, so to speak, he wouldn't have died. And what does he say? He tells her, "He is the resurrection and the life." That was his—that was his point. John chapter 12 verses 16 to 19 tells us that it was because of the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. That's, that's one of the main reasons the crowd was so large and bombastic on Palm Sunday. It wasn't some random. They, they heard of and saw the resurrection of Lazarus, and there was a craze that swept over the whole place. That's why they met Jesus and put their, their cloaks and things down on the ground for the donkey to walk on when he was carrying Christ. That's, that's the whole point. Their, their enthusiasm was such because of the resurrection of Lazarus. But the resurrection of Jesus himself is the capstone. It is the topper. It's the miracle of miracles and the sign of signs, both in the Gospels in general and in John's Gospel in particular. Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was, quote, delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, the resurrection proves that the price for our sins has been paid in full and accepted by God. He was raised for our justification. There's no gospel without the resurrection. There's no justification from our sins without the resurrection. And it proves that Jesus has the power over death and the grave. What did he say in John 11, 25? He is the resurrection and the life. So whoever believes on him will live even though he or she dies. And in that verse, he ends by saying, do you believe this? We are to read that passage and take that to heart. Do you believe that if you believe in Christ, even though you die, yet shall you live? And in verse 31 of our text, John says he wrote all these things for one primary reason, not just for our, you know, our wanting to know what happened, for our curiosity. He wrote these things, quote, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have what? Life in his name. In other words, the Gospel of John is preaching the Gospel of Christ. And his resurrection is highlighted here that we might believe Jesus really is who he said he is. And that by believing in Christ, you may have life in his name. It's because of the resurrection of Christ that we have in the Gospel, the promise of eternal and abundant life by faith in him. That's the focal point of John's Gospel, that he is the Christ And the focal point of all of scripture, he's the one who came uh, to die for the sins of his people and to rise again on the third day for our justification. And John's case here, he's making a case for us by by his gospel. The case he is making is to show us that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. And notice the implications of both Jesus' words in John verse 29 there and John's words in verse 30 and 31. He says, blessed are, you know, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. He said that to Thomas, but he said that for our benefit. We don't get to see him and believe. We believe and then we see him. Thomas got to see him first. And what does it say about the scriptures? What do you need to have saving faith? You know, many of us might, you know, in our earlier days, think like Thomas. Unless I see him, I'm not going to believe. And what does Jesus say? No, you just need the scriptures. In fact, Jesus told the Pharisees uh, in, in John's Gospel that uh, you know, that even, even if they saw someone rise from the dead, they would not believe. Remember the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? If they don't believe the scriptures, they're not going to believe even if somebody rises from the grave. And that is literally true. What you need for saving faith is the word of God found in the Bible. John said he wrote these things so that you might believe. That's the point. God gives us his word. John, by the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote these things that you and I might believe and that by believing we might have life. You know, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.15, the scriptures, Paul says, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Luke chapter 16, uh, that's where the parable of, the, of Lazarus and the rich man are, tell us that if we aren't convinced by the word of God, neither shall we be convinced though someone rises from the dead. That's how trustworthy the word of God and powerful the word of God is. Because of all this, you can have life, real life, eternal life, abundant life. By believing in Christ, by believing in him, you can have life in his name. If you don't yet know Christ, if you are uh, here and, and just kind out of here out of habit and whatnot, or because it's Easter, you can know Jesus Christ by faith and have eternal life in him. For the Son of God died for sinners and rose again on the third day for our justification. Amen.